Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 283 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with The White Mall by Frank L. Packard. First, though, a podcast highlight. This actually is a continuation of a podcast that I told you about some time ago. If you recall, I'm a big fan of the Tolkien Professor podcast, which is Corey Olson. He has also his Mythgard Academy podcast, and I've mentioned it before. But what I haven't mentioned lately is the variety of books they've been covering there. Because when they started off, they would cover Tolkien books, which makes sense. That's his first love. That's what got him into podcasting. He was teaching classes in it. Well, is still teaching classes in it. And so you expect them to delve pretty heavily into that. However, as they have gone on, they get people to contribute to the upkeep of the show and as I've said it's an online academy anyway so the people who do that get to vote on what they're going to talk about next so the type of books have really broadened out they have covered things like Watership Down, Ender's Game, Dune, The Princess Bride I mean all kinds of things. Now, these all fall, of course, into the science fiction and fantasy realms, which I love very much, but I wasn't sure if anybody had kept up with it since it began, so I wanted to mention that. Some of these episodes will run quite long. Quite often, they'll run two hours, and they'll get very in-depth, but I usually find them really worth it. I never, for example, had really thought about Watership Down on the level at which this book was covered, and I've always enjoyed the book a lot, but this made me feel as if somehow, oh, subliminally, there's quite a good reason for loving it this in-depth. The book was a much greater book than I realized. So, anyway, that's not a new podcast highlight, but I haven't mentioned it for a while, and so... I thought I'd bring it up again. Now back to our very own podcast, which is actually somebody else doing the reading. But otherwise, we wouldn't have much of a podcast because I haven't had time lately. Back to the White Mall by Frank L. Packard. All right, we're getting ready to go a bit more into detail about some of these escapades. Rhoda Gray, in her guise as the White Mall, has not only stopped a crime, but saved somebody's life, a potential victim, the Sparrow. And even more important, she has saved his poor old mother's heart from breaking because the way it was set up was to indicate that the Sparrow, despite his promise to his sweet old mother, had returned to a life of crime. Oh no, we can't have that. Anyway, when last we saw them, the White Mall and the Sparrow were leaving in haste, with villainous thieves raging at them from where they were tied up. Let's find out what happens next. How can we get the Sparrow off the hook fully? How can Rhoda Gray return to her own life and not always have to be either the White Mall or Gypsy Nan? Possibly one of the best characters ever created, in my opinion. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 7 Fellow Thieves Reaching the courtyard, Rhoda Gray led the way without a word through the driveway, and finding the street clear, hurried on rapidly. Her mind, strangely stimulated, was working in quick, incisive flashes. Her work was not yet done. The sparrow was safe, as far as his life was concerned, but her possession of even the necklace would not save the sparrow from the law. There was the money that was gone from the safe. She could not recover that, but— Yes, 
Dimly she began to see a way. She swerved suddenly from the sidewalk as she came to an alleyway, which had been her objective, and she drew the sparrow in with her, out of sight of the street. The sparrow gripped at her hand. "'The white mall,' he whispered brokenly. "'God bless the white mall. I ain't had a chance to say it before. You saved my life, and I—I—' In the semi-darkness she leaned forward, and laid her fingers gently over the sparrow's lips. "'And there's no time to say it now, Marty,' she said quickly. "'You are not out of this yet.' He swept his hand across his eyes. "'I know it,' he said. "'I gotta get those shiners back up there somehow, and I gotta get that paper they planted on me.' She shook her head. "'Even that wouldn't clear you,' she said. "'The safe has been looted of money, as well, and you can't replace that.' Even with only the money gone, who would they first naturally suspect? You are known as a safe-breaker. You have served a term for it. You ask for a night off to stay with your mother who's sick. You left Mr. Hayden Bonds, we'll say, at seven or eight o'clock. It's after midnight now. How long would it take them to find out that between eight and midnight you had never been near your mother, but could not prove an alibi of any sort? If you told them the truth, it would sound absurd. No one in their sober senses would believe you. The sparrow looked at her miserably. My God, he faltered. He wet his lips. That's true. Marty, she said quietly, did you read in the papers that I had been arrested last night for theft, caught with the goods on me, but had escaped? The sparrow hesitated. Yes, I did, he said, and then, earnestly, but I don't believe it. It was true, though, Marty, all except that I wasn't a thief, she said as quietly as before. What I want to know is, in spite of that, would you trust me with what is left to be done tonight, if I tell you that I believe I can get you out of this? Sure I would, he said simply. I don't know how you got wise about all this, or how you got to know about that necklace, but any in our crowd would trust you to the limit. Sure, I'd trust you. You bet your life. "'Thank you, Marty,' she said. "'Well, then, how do you get into Mr. Hayden Bond's house, "'when, for instance, you were out late at night?' "'I've got a key to the garage,' he answered. "'The garage is attached to the house, "'though it opens on the side street.' "'She held out her hand. "'The sparrow fished in his pocket "'and extended the key without hesitation. "'It's for the small door, of course,' he explained.' "'You haven't got a flashlight, I suppose,' she smiled. "'Sure. There's plenty of them. "'Each car's got one in its tools under the back seat.' "'She nodded. "'And now the library,' she said. "'What part of the house is it in? "'How is it situated?' "'It's on the ground floor at the back,' he told her. "'The little short passage from the garage opens on the kitchen, "'then the pantry, and then there's a little cross hallway.' and the dining-room is on the left, and the library on the right. "'But ain't I going with you?' She shook her head again. "'You're going home, Marty, after you've sent me a taxicab. "'If you were seen in that neighborhood now, let alone by chance, seen in the house, nothing could save you. "'You understand that, don't you? "'Now listen. Find a taxi and send it here.' Tell the chauffeur to pick me up, and drive me to the corner of the cross street, one block in the rear of Mr. Hayden Bond's residence. Don't mention Hayden Bond's name. Give the chauffeur simple street directions. Be careful that he is someone who doesn't know you. Tell him he will be well paid, and give him this to begin with. She thrust a banknote into the sparrow's hand. You're sure to find one at some all-night cabaret around here. And remember, when you get home afterward... Not a word to your mother. And not a word tomorrow, or ever to anyone. You've simply done as you told your employer you were going to do. Spent the night at home. But you, he burst out, and his words choked a little. I, I can't let you go, and... You said you would trust me, Marty, she said. And if you want to help me as well, don't waste another moment. I shall need every second I've got. Quick. Hurry. But... She pushed him toward the street. "'Run,' she said tensely. "'Hurry, Marty, hurry!' She drew back into the shadows. 
She was alone now. The sparrow's racing footsteps died away on the pavement. Her mind reverted to the plan that she had dimly conceived. It became detailed, concrete now, as the minutes passed. And then she heard a car coming along the previously deserted street, and she stepped out on the sidewalk. It was the taxi. "'You know where to go, don't you?' she said to the chauffeur, as the cab drew up to the curb, and the man leaned out and opened the door. "'Yes, m he said. "'Please drive fast, then,' she said as she stepped in. The taxi shot out from the curb and rattled forward at a rapid pace. Rhoda Gray settled back on the cushions. A half-whimsical, half-weary little smile touched her lips. It was much easier and infinitely safer, this mode of travel, than that of her early experience that evening. But earlier that evening she had had no one to go to a cab rank for her, and she had dared not appear in the open and hail one for herself. The smile vanished, and the lips became pursed and grim. Her mind was back on that daring, and perhaps a little dangerous, plan that she meant to put into execution. Block after block was traversed. It was a long way uptown, but the chauffeur's initial and generous tip was bearing fruit. The man was losing no time. Rhoda Gray calculated that they had been a little under a half an hour in making the trip, when the taxi finally drew up and stopped at a corner, and the chauffeur, again leaning out, opened the door. "'Wait for me,' she instructed, and handed the man another tip, and with a glance about her, to get her location, she hurried around the corner, and headed up the cross street. She had only a block now to go to reach the Hayden Bond mansion on the corner of Fifth Avenue ahead, less than that to reach the garage, which opened on the cross street here. She had little fear of personal identification now. Here, in this residential section, and at this hour of night, it was like a silent and deserted city. Even Fifth Avenue, just ahead, for all its lights, was one of the loneliest places at this hour in all New York. True, now and then a car might race up and down the great thoroughfare, or a belated pedestrian's footsteps ring and echo hollow on the pavement, where but a few hours before the traffic squad struggled valiantly, and sometimes vainly, with the congestion, but that was all. She could make out the Hayden Bond mansion on the corner ahead of her now, and now she was abreast of the rather ornate and attached little building that was obviously the garage. She drew the key from her pocket and glanced around her. There was no one in sight. She stepped swiftly into the small door that flanked the big double ones where the cars went in and out, opened it, closed it behind her and locked it. For a moment, her eyes unaccustomed to the darkness, she could see nothing, and then a car, taking the form of a grotesque looming shadow, showed in front of her. She moved toward it, felt her way into the tonneau, lifted up the back seat, and, groping around, found a flashlight. She meant to hurry now. She did not mean to let that nervous dread, that fear, that was quickening her pulse now, have time to get the better of her. She located the door that led to the house, and in a moment, the short passage behind her, she was in the kitchen, the flashlight winking cautiously around her. She paused to listen here. There was not a sound. She went on again, through a swinging pantry door with extreme care, and into a small hall. On the right, the sparrow had said. Yes, here it was a door that opened on the rear of the library, evidently. She listened again. There was no sound, save the silence, that seemed to grow loud now, and palpitate, and make great noises. And now, in spite of herself, her breath was coming in quick, hard little catches, and the flashlight's ray that she sent around her wavered and was not steady. She bit her lips as she switched off the light. Why should she be afraid of this? when in another five minutes she meant to invite attention. She pushed the door in front of her open, found it hung with a heavy portiere inside, brushed the portiere aside, stepped through into the room, stood still and motionless to listen once more, and then the flashlight circled inquisitively about her. It was the library. Her eyes widened a little. At her left, over against the wall, the mangled door of a safe stood wide open 
and the floor for a radius of yards around was littered with papers and documents. The flashlight's ray lifted, and she followed it with her eyes, as it made the circuit of the walls. Opposite the safe, and quite near the doorway in which she stood, was a window recess, portiered. Diagonally across from her was another door that led, presumably, into the main hall of the house. The walls were tapestried, and hung here and there with clusters of ancient trophies, great metal shields and swords, and curious arms that gave a sort of barbaric splendor to the luxurious furnishings of the apartment. She worked quickly now. In a moment she was at the window portieres, and drawing these aside, she quietly raised the window and looked out. The window was on the side of the house away from the cross street, and she nodded her head reassuringly to herself as she noted that it gave on a narrow strip of grass. It could not be called lawn that separated the Hayden Bond mansion from the house next door, that the window was little more than shoulder-high from the ground, and that the avenue was within easy and inviting reach along the little strip of grass between the two houses. She left the window open, and retraced her steps across the room, going now to the littered mass of papers on the floor near the safe. She began to search carefully amongst them. She smiled a little curiously as she came across the plushed-lined jeweler's case that had contained the necklace, and which had evidently been contemptuously discarded by the cricket and his confederates, but it took her longer to find the paper for which she was searching. And then she came upon it, a grease-smeared advertisement for some automobile appliances, a well-defined greasy fingerprint at one edge, and thrust the paper into her pocket. And now suddenly her heartbeat began to quicken, until its thumping became tumultuous. She was ready now. She looked around her, using the flashlight, and her eyes rested appraisingly on the great clusters of shields and arms that hung low down on the wall between the window and the door by which she had entered. Yes, that would do. She tightened her lips. It would have been so easy if there had not been that cash to account for. She could replace the necklace, but she could not replace the cash. And one, as far as the sparrow was concerned, was as bad as the other. But there was a way, and it was simple enough. She whispered to herself that it was not, after all, very dangerous, that the cards were all in her own hands. She had only to pull down those shields with a clatter to the floor, which would arouse some of the household, and as that someone reached the library door and opened it, she would disappear through the window, and the necklace, as though it had slipped from her pocket or grasp in her wild effort to escape, would be lying behind her on the floor. They would see that it was not the sparrow, and there would be no question as to where the money was gone, since the money had not been dropped. There was the interval, of course, that must be elapsed between the accident that knocked the shields from the wall and the time it would take for the inmates to reach the library an interval in which a thief might reasonably be expected to have had time enough to get away without being seen, but the possibility that she had not fully accomplished her ends when the accident occurred, and that she had stayed to make frantic and desperate efforts to do so right up to the last moment would account for that. She moved now to the electric light switch, and turned on the light. They must be able to see beyond any question of a doubt that the person escaping through the window was not the sparrow. What was she afraid of now, just at the last? There was an actual physical discomfort in the furious thumping of that cowardly little heart of hers. It was the only way, and it was worth it, and it was not so very dangerous. People aroused out of bed could not follow her in their nightclothes, and in a matter of but a few minutes, before the police, notified by telephone, could become a factor in the affair, she would have run a block down the avenue and then the other block down the cross street, back to the taxi, and be whirling safely downtown. Yes, she was ready. She nodded her head sharply, as though in imperative self-command, and running back, her footfalls soundless on the rich, heavy rug, she picked up the plushed-lined necklace case. She dropped this again, open on the floor, halfway between the safe and the window. With the case apparently burst open as it fell, and the necklace also on the floor, the stage would be set. She felt inside her bodice, drew out the necklace, 
and, as she stood there holding it, as it caught the light and flashed back its fire and life from a thousand facets, a numbness came stealing over her, a horror and a great fear, and a dismay robbed her of the power of movement, until she seemed that she was rooted to the spot, and a low, grasping cry came from her lips. Her eyes, wide with their alarm, were fixed on the window. There was a man's face there, just above the sill, and now a man's form swung through the window, and dropped lightly to the floor inside the room. And she stared in horrified fascination, and could not move. It was the adventurer. "'It's Miss Rhoda Gray, isn't it? The White Mall?' he murmured amiably. "'I've been trying to find you all night. What corking luck! You remember me, don't you? Last night, you know?' She did not answer. His eyes had shifted from her face to the glittering river of gems in her hand. "'I see,' he smiled, "'that you are ahead of me again. "'Well, it's the fortune of war, Miss Gray. "'I do not complain.' She found her voice at last, and, quick as a flash, as he advanced a step, she dropped the necklace into her pocket, and her revolver was in her hand. "'What, what are you doing here?' she whispered. He shrugged his shoulders, expressively. "'I take it that we are both in the same boat,' he said, pleasantly. "'In the same boat?' she echoed, dully. She remembered his conversation with her a few hours ago, when he had believed he was talking to Gypsy Nan. And now he stood before her a second time, a self-confessed thief. "'In the same boat? Thieves?' A certain cold composure came to her. "'You mean you came to steal this necklace? "'Well, you shall not have it. "'And, furthermore, you have no right to class me with yourself as a thief.' "'He had a whimsical, even engaging smile. "'His eyebrows lifted. "'Miss Gray perhaps forgets last night,' he suggested. "'No, I do not forget last night,' she said slowly. "'And I do not forget that I owe you very much for what you did.' and that is one reason why I warn you at once that as far as the necklace is concerned it will do you no good to build any hopes on the supposition that we are fellow thieves, and that I am likely either to part with it or, through gratitude, share it. In spite of appearances last night, I am not a thief. And tonight, Miss Gray, in spite of appearances, he challenged? He was regarding her with eyes that, while they appraised shrewdly, held a lurking hint of irony in their depths. And somehow, suddenly, self-proclaimed crook that she held him to be, she found herself seized with an absurd, unreasonable, but nevertheless passionate desire to make good her words. "'Yes, and to-night, too,' she asserted. "'I did not steal this necklace. I—' "'Never mind how I—I I got it.' It was planned to put the theft on an innocent man's shoulders. I was trying to thwart that plan. Whether you believe me or not, I did not come here to steal the necklace. I came here to return it. Quite so. Of course, acknowledged the adventurer softly. I am afraid I interrupted you, then, in the act of returning it. Might I suggest, therefore, Miss Gray, that as it's a bit dangerous to linger around here unnecessarily— you carry out your intentions, with all possible haste, and get away. And you? she queried evenly. Myself, of course, as well, he shrugged his shoulders philosophically. Under the circumstances, as a gentleman, will you let me say I prefer that word to the one that you are substituting for it? What else can I do? She bit her lips. Was he mocking her? The gray eyes were inscrutable now. "'Then please do not let me detain you,' she said sharply. "'And in turn let me advise you to go at once. "'I intend to knock one of those shields from the wall before I go, "'in order to arouse the household. "'I will, however, in part payment for last night, "'allow you three full minutes from the time you climb out that window, "'so that you may have ample time to get away.' "'He stared at her in frank bewilderment. "'Good Lord!' he gasped. "'You—' "'You are joking, Miss Gray.' "'No, I am not,' she said coolly. "'Far from it. "'There was money stolen that I cannot replace, 
and the theft of the money would be put on the same innocent shoulders. I see no other way than the one I mentioned. If whoever runs into this room is permitted to get a glimpse of me, and is given the impression that the necklace which I shall leave on the floor was dropped in my haste, the supposition remains that, at least, I got away with the money. I am certainly not the innocent man who was used as the pawn, and if I am recognized as the white mall, what does it matter, after last night? He took a step toward her impetuously, and stopped quite as impetuously. Her revolver had swung to level with his head. "'Pardon me?' he said. "'Not at all,' she said caustically. For the first time, as she watched him warily, the adventurer appeared to lose some of his self-assurance. He shifted a little uneasily on his feet, and the corners of his eyes puckered into a nest of perturbed wrinkles. "'I say, Miss Gray, you can't mean this,' he protested. "'You're not serious.' "'I have told you that I am,' she answered steadily. "'Those three minutes that I gave you are going fast.' "'Then look here,' he exclaimed earnestly. "'I'll tell you something. I said I have been trying to find you tonight. It was the truth.' I went to Gypsy Nan's, and might have been spared my pains. I told her about last night, and that I knew you were in danger, and that I wanted to help you. I mention this so you will understand that I am not just speaking on the spur of the moment, now that I have an opportunity of repeating that offer in person. She looked at him impassively for a moment. He neglected to state that he had also told Gypsy Nan he desired to enter into a partnership with her in crime. It is very kind of you, she said sweetly. I presume, then, that you have some suggestion to make. Only what any, may I say it, gentleman would suggest under the circumstances? It is far too dangerous a thing for a woman to attempt. It would be much less dangerous for me. I realize that you are in earnest now, and I will agree to carry out your plan in every detail once I am satisfied that you are safely away. The idea being, she observed monotonously, that being safely away, and the necklace being left safely on the floor, you are left safely in possession of the necklace. Well, my answer is no. His face hardened a little. I'm sorry, then, he said, for in that case, in so far as your project is concerned, I too must say no. It was an impasse. She studied his face the strong jaw set a little now, the lips molded in sterner lines, and for all her outward show of composure she knew a sick dismay. And for a moment she neither moved nor spoke. What he would do next she did not know, but she knew quite well that he had not the slightest intention of leaving her here undisturbed to carry out her plan, unless, unless somehow she could outwit him. She bit her lips again, and then inspiration came. She turned, and with a sudden leap gained the wall, and the next instant, holding him back with her revolver as she reached up with her left hand, she caught the great metal shield with its encircling cluster of small arms, and wrenched it from its fastenings. It crashed to the floor with a din infernal that, in the night silence, went racketing through the house like the reverberations of an explosion. "'My God! What have you done?' he cried out hoarsely. "'What I said I'd do,' she answered. She was white-faced, frightened at her own act, fighting to maintain her nerve. "'You'll go now, I imagine,' she flung at him passionately. "'You haven't much time.' "'No,' he said. His composure was instantly at command again. "'No,' he repeated steadily. "'Not until after you have gone. "'I refuse. Positively.' to let you run any such risk as that. It's far too dangerous. Yes, you will, she burst out, wildly. You will. You must. You shall. I, I... The house itself seemed suddenly to have awakened. From above, doors opened and closed. Indistinctly there came the sound of a voice. She clenched her hand in anguished desperation. Go, you, you coward, she whispered frantically. "'Miss Gray, for God's sake, do as I tell you,' he said between his teeth. "'You don't realize the danger. "'It's not the pursuit. 
They are not coming down here unarmed after that racket. I know that you came in by that door there. Go out that way. I will play the game for you. I swear it. There were footsteps, plainly audible now, out in the main hall. Quick, he urged. Are we both to be caught? See? He backed suddenly toward the window. See? I am too far away now to touch the necklace before they get here. Throw it down and get behind the portiere of the rear door. Mechanically she was retreating. They were almost at the other door now, those footsteps outside in the main hall. With a backward spring she reached the portiere. The door handle across the room rattled. She glanced at the adventurer. He was close to the window. It was true he could not get the necklace, and at the same time hoped to escape. She whipped it from her pocket, tossed it from her to the floor near the plush-lined case, and slipped behind the portiere. The door opposite to her was wrenched violently open. She could see through the corner of the portiere. There was a sharp, excited exclamation as a gray-haired man, in pajamas, evidently Mr. Hayden Bond himself, sprang into the room. He was followed by another man in equal dishevel, and the adventurer was leaping from the window. There was a blinding flash, the roar of a report, as the millionaire flung up a revolver and fired. It was echoed by the splatter and tinkle of falling glass. The adventurer was astride the window-sill now, his face deliberately and unmistakably in view. "'A foot too high, and a bit to the right,' said the adventurer, debonairly, and the window-sill was empty. Rhoda Gray stole silently through the doorway behind her. She could hear the millionaire, and his companion, the butler, probably, rush across the library to the window. As she gained the pantry, she heard another shot. Tight-lipped, using her flashlight, she ran through the kitchen. In a moment more, she was standing at the garage door, listening, peering furtively outside. The street itself was empty. There were shouts, though, from the direction of the avenue. She stepped out on the side street, and walking composedly, that she might not attract attention, though very impulse urged her to run with frantic haste, she reached the corner and the waiting taxicab. She gave the chauffeur an address that would bring her to the street in the rear of Gypsy Nan's, and within reach of the lane where she had left her clothes, and, with an injunction to hurry, sprang into the cab. And then for a long time she sat there with her hands tightly clasped in her lap. Her mind, her brain, her very soul itself seemed in chaos and turmoil. There was the sparrow, who was safe, and Dangler, who would move heaven and hell to get her now, and the adventurer who, her mind seemed to grope around in cycles. It seemed to moil on and on, and arrive at nothing. The adventurer had played the game, perhaps because he had had to, but he had not risked that revolver shot in her stead because he had had to. Who was he? How had he come there? How had he found her there? How had he known that she had entered by that rear door behind the portiere? She remembered how that he had offered not a single explanation. Almost mechanically she dismissed the taxi when at last it stopped, and almost mechanically, as Gypsy Nan, some ten minutes later, she let herself into the garret and lighted the candle. She was conscious, as she hid the white mall's clothes away, that she was thankful she had regained in safety even the questionable sanctuary of this wretched place. But, strangely, thoughts of her own peril seemed to be somehow temporarily relegated to the background. She flung herself down on the bed. It was not Gypsy Nan's habit to undress, and she blew out the light. But she could not sleep. And hour after hour in the darkness she tossed unrestfully. It was very strange. It was not as it had been last night. It was not the impotent, frantic rebellion against the horrors of her own situation, nor the fear and terror of it that obsessed her tonight. It was the adventurer who plagued her. CHAPTER Eight, THE CODED MESSAGE It was strange, most strange. Three days had passed, and to Gypsy Nan's lodging no one had come. 
the small crack under the partition that had been impressed into service as a letter-box had remained empty. There had been no messages, nothing, only a sinister, brooding isolation. Since the night Rhoda Gray had left Dangler, balked, almost a madman in his fury, in the little room over Schlucker's junk-shop, Dangler had not been seen, nor the adventurer, nor even Rough Rourke. Her only visitant since then had been an ugly premonition of impending peril, which came and stalked like a hideous ghost about the bare and miserable garret, and which woke her at night with its whispering voice, which was the voice of intuition. Rhoda Gray drew her shawl closer around her shoulders and shivered, as now, from shuffling down the block in the guise of Gypsy Nan, she halted before the street door of what fate, for the moment, had thrust upon her as a home and shivered again, as with abhorrence she pushed the door open and stepped forward into the black, unlighted hallway. Soul, mind, and body were in revolt to-night. Even faith, the simple faith in God that she had known since childhood, was wavering. There seemed nothing but horror around her, a mental horror, a physical horror, and the sole means of even momentary relief and surcease from it had been a pitiful prowling around the streets where even the fresh air seemed to be denied to her, for it was tainted with the smells of squalor that ruled, rampant, in the neighborhood. And to-night, stronger than ever, intuition and premonition of approaching danger lay heavy upon her, and oppressed her with a sense of nearness. She was not a coward, but she was afraid. Dangler would leave no stone unturned to get the white mall. He had said so. She remembered the threat he had made. It had lived in the woman's soul ever since that night. Better anything than to fall into Dangler's hands. She caught her breath a little, and shivered again as she groped her way up the dark stairs. But then she never would fall into Dangler's power. There was always an alternative. Yes, it was quite as bad as that. Death at her own hands was preferable. Balked, outwitted, the plans of the criminal coterie, of which Dangler appeared to be the head, rendered again and again abortive, and believing it all due to the white mall, all of Dangler's shrewd, unscrupulous cunning would be centered on the task of running her down, and if, added to this, he discovered that she was masquerading as Gypsy Nan, one of their inner circle, it meant that. She closed her lips in a hard, tight line. She did not want to think of it. She had fought all day and the day before, against thinking about it, but premonition had crept upon her stronger and stronger, until to-night, now, it seemed, though her mind could dwell on nothing else. On the landing she paused suddenly and listened. The street door had opened and closed, and now a footstep sounded on the stairs behind her. She went on again along the hall, feeling her way, and reaching the short, ladder-like steps to the garret, she began to mount them. Who was it there behind her? One of the unknown lodgers on the lower floor? Or... She could not see, of course. It was pitch black. But she could hear. And now she knelt on the narrow landing, and felt with her fingers along the floor the aperture where, imitating the custom of Gypsy Nan, she had left her key when she went out, and she heard the footsteps coming steadily on, passing the doors below her, and making toward the garret ladder. And then... Stifling a startled little cry, her hand closed on the key, as it had that first night when she had returned here in the role of Gypsy Nan, on a piece of paper wrapped around the key. The days of isolation were ended with climactic effect. The pendulum had swung full the other way. Tonight there was both a visitor and a message. The paper detached from the key and thrust into her bodice, she stood up quickly. A form looming up in the darkness showed on the garret stairs. "'Who's there?' she croaked. "'It's all right,' a voice answered in low tones. "'You were just ahead of me on the street. I saw you come in. It's Pierre.' Pierre. So that was his name. It was only the voice she recognized. Pierre Dangler. She fumbled for the keyhole, found it, and inserted the key. "'Well, how's Bertha tonight?' There seemed to be a strange exhilaration in the man's voice. He was standing beside her now, close beside her, and now his hand played with a curiously caressing motion on her shoulder. 
the touch seemed to scorch and burn her. Who was this dangler? Who was Pierre to her, and to whom she was Bertha? Her breath came quickly in spite of herself. There came, too, a frenzy of aversion, and impulsively she flung his hand away, and with the door unlocked now, she stepped from him into the garret. "'Feeling a bit off-color, eh?' he said with a short laugh, as he followed her, and shut the door behind him. "'Well, I don't know as I blame you. But look here, old girl, have a heart. It's not my fault. I know what you're grouching about. It's because I haven't been around much lately. But you ought to know well enough that I couldn't help it. Our game has been crippled lately at every turn by that she-devil, the white mall, and that dude pal of hers.' He laughed out again in savage menace now. "'I've been busy. Understand, Bertha? It was either ourselves or them. We've got to go under, or they have. And we won't. I promise that. Things will break a little better before long, and I'll make it up to you.' She could not see him in the blackness of the garret. She breathed a prayer of gratitude that he could not see her. Her face, in spite of Gypsy Nan's disguising grime, must be white, white as death itself. It seemed to plumb some infamous depth from which her soul recoiled, this apology of his, for his neglect of her. And then her hands, at her sides, curled into tight, clenched little fists, as she strove to control herself. His words, at least, supplied her with her cue. "'Of course,' she said tartly, but in perfect English. The vernacular of Gypsy Nan was not for Dangler for she remembered only too well how once before it had nearly tripped her up. "'But you didn't come here to apologize. What is it you want?' "'Ah, uh, I say, Bertha,' he said, appeasingly, "'cut that out. I couldn't help being away, I tell you. Of course, I didn't come here to apologize. I thought you'd understand well enough without that. The gang's out of cash, and I came to tap the reserves. Let me have a package of the long green, Bertha.' It was a moment before she spoke. Her woman's instinct prompted her to let down the bars between them in no single degree, that her protection lay in playing to the full what Dangler, jumping at conclusions, had assumed was a grouch at his neglect. Also, her mind worked quickly. Her clothes were no longer in the secret hiding-place here in the garret. They were out there in the old shed in the lane. It was perfectly safe, then, to let Dangler go to the hiding-place himself, assuming that he knew where it was, which, almost of necessity, he must. "'Oh,' she said ungraciously, "'well, you know where it is, don't you? Suppose you go and get it yourself.' "'All right,' returned Dangler, a sullenness creeping into his voice. "'Have it your own way, Bertha. I haven't got time to-night to coach you out of your tantrums. That's what you want, but I haven't got time to-night.' She did not answer. A match crackled in Dangler's hands. The flames spurted up through the darkness. Dangler made his way over to the rickety washstand, found the candle that was stuck in the neck of the gin-bottle, and lighted it. He held the candle above his head, and stared around the garret. "'Why the devil don't you get another lamp?' he grumbled, and started toward the rear of the garret. Rhoda Gray watched him silently. She did not care to explain that she had not replaced the lamp for the very simple reason that it would give far too much light here in the garret to be safe.' for her. She watched him, with her hand in the pocket of the greasy skirt, clutched around another legacy of Gypsy Nan, her revolver. And now she became conscious that from the moment she had entered the garret, her fingers, hidden in that pocket, had sought and clung to the weapon. The man filled her with detestation and fear, and somehow she feared him more now in what he was trying to make an ingratiating mood than she had feared him in the full flood of his rage and anger that other night at Schlucker's place. She drew back a little toward the cot bed against the wall, drew back to give him free passage to the door when he should return again, her eyes still holding on the far end of the garret, where with the slope of the roof the ceiling was no more than shoulder-high. There seemed something horribly weird and grotesque in the scene before her. He had pushed the narrow trap-door in the ceiling upward, and thrust the candle and his head through the opening, and the faint yellow light, seeping back and downward in flickering, uncertain rays, suggested the impression of a gruesome, headless figure standing there hazily outlined in the surrounding murk. It chilled her. She clutched at her shawl. 
drew it more closely about her, and edged still nearer the wall. And then Dangler closed the trap-door again, and came back with the candle in one hand, and one of the bulky packages of banknotes from the hiding-place in the other. He set the candle down on the washstand, and began to distribute the money through his various pockets. He was smiling with curious complacency. "'It was your job to play the spider to the white mall, if she ever showed up here again in your parlor,' he said. "'Maybe somebody tipped her off to keep away. Maybe she's too wily. But anyway, since you have not sent out any word, it is evident that our little plans along that line didn't work, since she has failed to come back and pay a call of gratitude to you.' "'I don't suppose there's anything to add to that, eh, Bertha? No report to make?' "'No,' said Rhoda Gray shortly. "'I haven't any report to make.' "'Well, no matter,' said Dangler. He laughed out, shortly. "'There are other ways. "'She's had her fling at our expense. "'It's her turn to pay now.' He laughed again, and in the laugh now there was something both brutal in its menace and sinister in its suggestion of gloating triumph. "'What do you mean?' demanded Rhoda Gray. "'What are you going to do?' "'Get her,' said Dangler. The man's passion flamed up suddenly. He spoke through his closed teeth. "'Get her. I made her a little promise, and I'm going to keep it. Understand?' "'You've been saying that for quite a long time,' retorted Rhoda Gray, coolly. "'But the getting has been all the other way so far. How are you going to get her?' Dangler's little black eyes narrowed, and he thrust his head forward and out from his shoulders savagely. In the flickering candlelight, with contorted face and snarling lips, he looked again the beast to which she had once likened him. "'Never mind how I'm going to get her,' he flung out, with an oath. "'I told you I'd been busy. That's enough. You'll see.' Rhoda Gray, in the semi-darkness, shrugged her shoulders. Was the man, prompted by rage and fury, simply making wild threats, or had he at last some definite and perhaps infallible plan that he proposed putting into operation?' She didn't know, and much as it meant to her, she did not dare take the risk of arousing suspicion by pressing the question. Failing, then, to obtain any intimation of what he meant to do, the next thing most to be desired was to get rid of him. "'You've got the money. That's what you came for, wasn't it?' she suggested coldly. He stared at her for a moment, and then his face gradually lost its scowl. "'You're a rare one, Bertha,' he exclaimed admiringly. "'Yes, I've got the money.' and I'm going. In fact, I'm in a hurry, so don't worry. You got the dope, like everybody else, for tonight, didn't you? It was sent out two hours ago. The dope? It puzzled her for a fraction of a second, and then she remembered the paper that she had thrust into the bodice of her dress. She hadn't read it. She lunged a little in the dark. Yes, she said curtly. All right, he said, and moved toward the door. That explains why I'm in a hurry, and why I can't stop to oil that grouch out of you. But I'll keep my promise to you, too, old girl. I'll make up the last few days to you. Have a heart, eh, Bertha? Night. She did not answer him. It seemed as though an unutterable dread had suddenly been lifted from her, as he passed out of the door and began to descend the steps to the hall below. Her grouch, he had called it. Well, it served its purpose. It was just as well that he should think so. She followed to the door, and deliberately slammed it with a bang. And from below his laugh, more an amused chuckle, echoed back and answered her. And then, for a long time, she stood there by the door, a little weak with the revulsion of relief upon her, her hands pressed hard against her temples, staring unseeingly about the garret. He was gone. He filled her with terror. Every instinct she possessed, every fiber of her being revolted against him. He was gone. Yes, he was gone, for the time being. But, but what was the end of all this to be? She shook her head after a moment, shook it helplessly and wearily, as finally she walked over to the washstand, took the piece of paper from the bodice of her dress, and spread it out under the candlelight. A glance showed her that it was in cipher, there was a stub of a pencil, she remembered, in the washstand drawer, and armed with this, and with a piece of wrapping paper that had once enveloped one of Gypsy Nan's gin bottles, she took up the candle, crossed the garret, and sat on the edge of the cot, placing the candle on the chair in front of her. 
If the last three days had been productive of nothing else, they had at least furnished her with the opportunity of studying the notebook she had found in the secret hiding-place, and of making herself conversant with the gang's cipher, and now she set to work upon it. It was a numerical cipher. Each letter of the alphabet in regular rotation was represented by its corresponding numeral. A zero was employed to set off one letter from another, and the addition of the numerals between the zeros indicated the number of the letter involved. Also, there being but twenty-six letters in the alphabet, it was obvious that the additions of three nines, which was twenty-seven, could not represent any letter, and the combination of nine-nine-nine was therefore used to precede any arbitrary groups of numbers which were employed to express phrases and sentences, such as the seven-three-nine that she had found scrawled on the piece of paper around the key on the first night she had come here, and which, had it been embodied in a message, and not preceded by the nine-nine-nine, would have meant simply the addition of seven, three, and nine, that is, nineteen, and therefore would indicate the nineteenth letter of the alphabet, S. Rhoda Gray copied the first line of the message on a piece of wrapping paper. Three two one zero one zero three 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 two zero three two zero two three zero six 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 three one zero three 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 zero one 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 zero two two one zero four 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 two zero two one zero one 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 two zero five two one one zero seven one six adding the numerals between the zeros and giving to each its corresponding letter she set down the result six zero one zero one one zero five zero five zero two two zero nine zero four zero five zero one four zero three zero five zero nine zero one four f a k e e v i d e n c i n it was then but a matter of grouping the letters into words, and decoded the first line read, Fake Evidence In. She worked steadily on. It was a lengthy message, and it took her a long time. It was an hour, perhaps more, after Dangler had gone, before she had completed her task, and then, after that, she sat for still a long time staring, not at the paper on the chair before her, but at the flickering shadows thrown by the candle on the opposite wall. Queer and strange were the undercurrents and the cross-sections of life that were to be found, amazingly contradictory, amazingly incomprehensible, once one scratched beneath the surface of the poverty and the squalor, and, yes, the crime, amongst the hiving thousands of New York's east side. In the days, not so very long ago, when, as the White Mall, she had worked amongst these classes, she had, on one occasion, when he was sick, even kept old Viner in food. She had not, at the time, failed to realize that the man was grasping, rapacious, even unthankful, but she had little dreamed that he was a miser worth fifty thousand dollars. Her mind swerved off suddenly at a tangent. The tentacles of the crime octopus, of which Dangler seemed to be the head, reached far into the most curious places to fasten and hold and feed on the progeny of human foibles. She could not help wondering where the lair was from which emanated the efficiency and system that, as witness this code message to-night, kept its members, perhaps widely scattered, fully informed of its every movement. She shook her head. That was something she had not yet learned, but it was something she must learn, if ever she hoped to obtain the evidence that would clear her of the crime that circumstances had fastened upon her. And yet she made no move in that direction because, well, because so far, it had seemed all she could do to protect and safeguard herself in her present miserable existence and surroundings, which, abhorrent as they were, alone stood between her and a prison cell. Her forehead gathered into little furrows, and reverting to the code message, her thoughts harked back to a well-known crime, the authorship of which still remained a mystery, and which had stirred the east side some two years ago. A man, in the vernacular of the underworld, a stagehand, by the name of Croner, credited with having a large amount of cash, the proceeds of some nefarious transaction, 
in his possession on the night in question, was found murdered in his room in an old, tumbled-down tenement of unsavory reputation. The police net had gathered in some of the co-tenants on suspicion, Nicky Viner, referred to in the code message amongst them. But nothing had come of the investigation. There had been no charge of collusion between the suspects, but Perlmer, a shyster lawyer, had acted for them all collectively, and, one and all, they had been discharged. In what degree Perlmer's services had been of actual value had never been ascertained, for the police, through lack of evidence, had been obliged to drop the case, but the underworld had whispered to itself. There was such a thing as suppressing evidence, and Perlmer was known to have the cunning of a fox, and a code of morals that never stood in the way, or restricted him in any manner. The code message threw a new light on all this. Perlmer must have known that old Nicky Viner had money, for according to the code message, Perlmer prepared a fake set of affidavits and forged a chain of fake evidence with which he had blackmailed Nicky Viner ever since. And Nicky Viner, known as a dissolute, shady character, innocent enough of the crime, but afraid because his possession of money, if made public, would tell against him, and frightened because he had already been arrested once on suspicion for that very crime, had whimpered and paid. And then, somehow, Dangler and his gang had discovered that the old, seedy, stoop-shouldered, bearded, down-at-the-heels Nicky Viner was not all that he seemed, that he was a miser, and had a hoard of fifty thousand dollars, and Dangler and the gang had set out to find that hoard and appropriate it. Only they had not succeeded. But in their search they had stumbled upon Perlmer's trail, and that was the key to the plan they had afoot to-night. If Perlmer's fake and manufactured affidavits were clever enough and convincing enough to wring money out of Viner for Perlmer, they were more than enough to enable Dangler, employed as Dangler would employ them, to wring from Nicky Viner the secret of where the old miser hid his wealth, for Viner would understand that Dangler was not hampered by having to safeguard himself on account of having been originally connected with the case in a legal capacity, or any capacity and therefore, in demanding all or nothing, would have no cause for hesitation, failing to get what he wanted, in turning the evidence over to the police. In other words, where Perlmer had to play his man cautiously and get what he could, Dangler could go the limit and get all. As it stood then, Dangler and the gang had not found out the location of that hoard, but they had found out where Perlmer kept his spurious papers stuffed at the back of a bottom drawer of his desk in his office, practically forgotten, practically useless to Perlmer any more, for having once shown them to Viner, there was no occasion to call them into service again, unless Viner showed signs of getting a little out of hand, and it became necessary to apply the screws once more. For the rest, it was a very simple matter. Perlmer had an office in a small building on Lower Sixth Avenue, and it was his custom to go to his office in the evenings, and remained there until ten o'clock or so. The plan, then, according to the code message, was to loot Perlmer's desk sometime after the man had gone home for the night, and then, at midnight, armed with the false documents, to beard old Nicky Viner in his miserable quarters on the east side, and extort from the old miser the neat little sum that Dangler estimated would amount to some fifty thousand dollars in cash. Rhoda Gray's face was troubled and serious. She found herself wishing for a moment that she had never decoded the message. But she shook her head in sharp self-protest the next instant. True, she would have evaded the responsibility that the criminal knowledge now in her possession had brought her, but she would have done so, in that case, deliberately at the expense of her own self-respect. It would not have excused her in her own soul to have sat staring at a cipher message that she was satisfied with some criminal plot and have refused to decode it simply because she was afraid a sense of duty would involve her in an effort to frustrate it. To have sat idly by under those circumstances would have been reprehensible, and even more cowardly, than it would be to sit idly by now that she knew what was to take place. And on that latter score to-night there was no argument with herself. She found herself accepting the fact that she would act, and act promptly, as the only natural corollary to the fact that she was in a position to do so. Perhaps it was that way to-night, 
not only because she had on a previous occasion already fought this principle of duty out with herself but because to-night unlike that other night the way and means seemed to present no unsurmountable difficulties and because she was now far better prepared and free from all the perplexing though enormously vital little details that had on the former occasion reared themselves up in mountainous aspect before her the purchase of a heavy veil for instance the day after the hayden bond affair would enable her now to move about the city in the clothes of the white mall practically at will and without fear of detection and further the facilities for making that change the change from gypsy nan to the white mall were now already at hand in the little old shed behind the lane as far as any actual danger that she might incur to-night was concerned it was not great she was not interested in the fifty thousand dollars in an intrinsic sense she was interested only in seeing that old nicky viner unappealing yes and almost repulsive both in personality and habits as the man was was not blackmailed out of it that dangler yes and hereafter perlmer too should not prey like vultures on the man and rob him what was rightfully his if therefore she secured those papers from perlmer's desk it automatically put an end to dangler's scheme to-night and if later she saw to it that those papers came into viner's possession that too automatically ended perlmer's persecutions indeed there seemed little likelihood of any danger or risk at all. It could not be quite ten o'clock yet, and it was not likely that whoever was delegated by Dangler to rob Perlmer's office would go there much before eleven anyway, since they would naturally allow for the possibility that Perlmer might stay later in his office than usual, a contingency that doubtlessly accounted for midnight being set for the hour at which they proposed to lay old Nicky Viner by his heels therefore it seemed almost a certainty that she would reach there not only first but with ample time at her disposal to secure the papers and get away without interruption she might even perhaps reach the office before perlmer himself had left it was still quite early enough for that but in that case she need only remain on watch until the lawyer had locked up and gone away nor need even that fact that the office would be locked dismay her in the secret hiding-place here in the garret among those many other evidences of criminal activity was the collection of skeleton keys and she was moving swiftly around the attic now physically as active as her thoughts it was not like that other night there were few preparations to make she had only to secure the keys and a flashlight and to take with her a damp cloth that would remove the grime streaks from her face and the box of composition that would enable her to replace them when she came back and five minutes later she was on the street making her way toward the lane and specifically toward the deserted shed where she had hidden away her own clothing <laughs> okay rhoda gray the white mall has got some kind of nerve right wow she faced dangler and just outsmarted him and got away with the sparrow, which I thought was fantastic. I do have to say later on when she's going to plant the necklace, so it's really obvious that the sparrow couldn't have taken it. I loved the fact <laughs> that she and the adventurer are standing there arguing about who's going to trust who and who's going to do what and how far away is everybody from stuff so that while the house is coming alive around them and people, I could just imagine they're running around. You can hear voices, people on the stairs. They're like, no, you, uh, no, you go first. You go first. It just made me laugh. So we continue. The whole book is one big adventure because for one thing, we've got to figure out who is the adventurer. Why was he so surprised? You know, he had that look in his eyes when he found out what she was trying to do. And now he's trying to save her. You know, I'll do it. You shouldn't take that risk. What's going on here? Of course, we like him. We want to like him. We want him to be a good guy. But we don't really understand what his motivations are. We want to know more about his story. And I also have to say all that code breaking just left me cold. I did not care. And it probably looks good when you're reading the book, but to listen to it was, uh, 
for me, what a drag. Luckily, it didn't last for very long. That's really it. I haven't heard from anybody, but I hope everybody's enjoying these adventures. They do come in with a bit of a odd sound. I can't help that. Like a little bit of background sound that might be in the original files. But as is clear, even when I'm just doing this, it's hard for me to get out a weekly episode. So imagine how long it would take if I was reading it. I wanted to also mention that the Fantastic Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, which I have highlighted before, has begun a new book called The Outlaw of Torn. It is one of the historical books, and it's one that I hadn't even heard of, and I thought I at least knew of most of them. He's on about oh, episode three or something right now, so it's pretty early in the book. Give that one a try. And The Shanaki which is a podcast that kind of went off the air a long time ago and came back just recently, I found out. I'm so excited. They were a series of humorous, thoughtful little essays, but with the emphasis on humorous, they always just would make you laugh. And the guy's voice is perfect. He's really good. So I'll put a link to that. And if you ever listened to the Shanaki before, you're going to be like me just racing over there. And if you didn't, this is another good one to give a try. And in other news, I have no other news except for the fact that I wasn't able to finish my book club book in time for the meeting last night. And I realized when I looked at my calendar last month for various podcasts, well, really for a good story is hard to find and for sff audio i had read the cane mutiny which is 500 pages i'd read book two of the two towers i'd read the picture of dorian gray which is not super long but it is a complex book so you have to really slow down and pay attention i am finishing uncle tom's cabin which Scott and I will be talking about next week on A Good Story is Hard to Find. And, oh gosh, there was some other book in there too that was some requirement that I was going to be recorded for or have to lead a talk in or that kind of thing. So the book club was the one place where I knew, like home, when you go there, they have to take you in, <laughs> whether you've read the book or not. And I got there and nobody but one person had read the book. I do want to say, though, that we had really a great conversation, considering no one had read the book. We all had a thousand questions, and then a lot of conversation came from those. So it wasn't the optimum way to look at the book, but it was still a really fun evening. So that was kind of a unique experience, and it did make me realize I've read so many books this month. Oh my gosh, so many pages. Not that I haven't enjoyed it, but when they're all assignments, then you start to, you know, feel the grind come in. And we're in the dog days of summer. It's August. Sirius the dog star is up there, I guess. And it's hot. It's very, very hot. Very hot. No more rain like we had before. Everybody now in the news is saying, well, we've been, you know, 20 days without rain. And I'm thinking we would have been a lot more usually. We just had an unusual rainy, floody season in the beginning of the summer. So I actually, for once, don't mind it being normal weather. And that's kind of nice. Next week, as I said, we will proceed with more of the White Mall. So I hope you come back and join us for that. And as always, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.